Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Venus. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by James Blackman. James is just an ordinary guy, husband to a beautiful, extraordinary wife, father to two brilliant kids. Those are his words, not ours, but we have no reason to doubt him, and he will have his vengeance in this life or the next. To be more like James, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show and grow the show. Joe Marler is a big-hearted man, and he's got a podcast plan. It's the Joe Marler Show. It's the Joe Marler Show. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, my darling, oh, my darling. Da, 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 da. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Big Fat Joe. This is Tom. That was my favourite start to a show we've ever done, Joe. What brought that on? Uh, what brought it on? I am currently sat in my daughter's kitchen slash calf slash recording studio now um, with a blanket on my head. And as Steve had just said, go, right, don't make it too long. Let's get into it. Let's, yeah, I was kind of like, right, yeah, let's start business. Because usually I fuck around with getting all scared and nervous and the butterflies in my tummy. But I don't because I'm more scared and nervous about putting something out of place in Maggie's kitchen. Because honestly, mate, when she goes, she goes. And I do not want her to lose her shit. Not today. What's Maggie had cooking in her kitchen recently? She's got some ice cream, so she hasn't cooked that, but that's her ice cream stand. Um, let me just have a look in the oven. Ow, fucking, it's quite cramped, actually. It's, I don't think it's built for adult humans. It's for tiny ones. She's got some biscuits. Uh, do you want a biscuit? She's also got a coffee machine and little fairy books. It's lovely. Actually, in fact, her kitchen is nicer than our kitchen. I'm going to cook in here more often. Hang on, what's happened to your duvet? I forgot the duvet today, Joe. So as you know, ordinarily I hang a duvet on the wardrobe behind me to give some element of sound baffling to the podcast. Do I sound echoey, Joe? Do I sound like I'm in a great cathedral? Do I sound like I'm coming from the Whispering Gallery at St Paul's? No, I neither. But you just said the sound baffling. Isn't it sound muffling? Sound muffling. Ah! <laughs> oh fuck off anything always, on your mind this morning joe i just always bring the tone down don't i is is muffing on my mind this morning yes i would love a lovely blueberry muffin because that's on my mind it's jasper's birthday today actually oh happy birthday jasper what are you getting him he's not here so what's he out has he opened it already yeah he got a lot of man united stuff he's obsessed with man united like even to the point where I forced Steve, our producer, to walk to Manchester United Stadium and film him walking round it just so I could show Jasper because he'd heard Steve lived near it. But oh. He got a Paul Pogba wobbly head. A great birthday. 
No, he got some training kit. He got some football tennis. So oh, that's quality. So me and him are going to practice. And what the fuck else did he get? He got Man United poster, you know, wall sticker that he tried putting up himself this morning before school, only to come down and he'd stuck it all together and we had to chuck it in the bin. He was so close to crying, but he didn't. He stayed oh. strong. I said, you can cry if you want, mate. No, it's fine. I get it. You know, I deal with the consequences. I should have waited for you, daddy, to help me. I went, yes, you should have. Uh, can you get me another one? No fucking chance. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fine. Joe, have you been meeting podcast listeners on your rugby travels? Yes, I have, Tom. It was actually quite, it was nice, actually. Usually before a game, so it was Saturday, I left the hotel in Exeter to wander just for some fresh air. And I found a coffee spot called the Common Beaver. Mm-hmm. Nothing to see here. And I ordered a lovely flat white. It was a lovely coffee. I had a nice chat with the owners there. And then as I was walking back, um, these three uni students stopped me and they said, oh, are you Joe Marlowe? I went, yes, hello, how are you? And they were like, oh, good. We've just literally finished listening to your podcast. And they were like, oh, when are you going to get a cold water swimmer on? I went, what do you mean? Mm. They were like, because we, we see your Instagram, you go cold water swimming all the time now. I was like, yeah. Chatting away with them, saying how much they love the show. So big raps to you, Tom, and small raps to me. And... They also told me that, I said, why are there so many students in the hotel I'm staying in? I thought it was like lockdown. They were like, oh, have you not heard? I went, no. Heard what? They said there was a World War II bomb that exploded the other day <gasps> in their halls. So they're all living in hotels around the place now. Did you hear about that? No, it sounds a bit of a touch. What do you mean? I don't think a World War II bomb has ever been described as a bit of a touch. <laughs> <laughs> they actually say, don't touch it. It's, you shouldn't touch a World War II bomb. <laughs> touch hey joe we've had a message from uh, a dutch man a dutchman a dutch man called mel's alloway he is from rotterdam or anywhere liverpool or rome or rome as rotterdam is anywhere anywhere but home anywhere but home who sang that that was the beautiful south joe i tell you what we both have a, a read of mel's alloways because we're going to do it in a Dutch accent because he is from Rotterdam. So I don't want to hog this one. I'll go first and you have a go. Hey, Joe, I've removed my four-year-long beard and I feel naked to the bone. Joe, I've removed my four-year-long beard and feel naked to the bone. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Mel Zalloway. Mel thank you so much for your message Mills. i find the dutch accent the hardest one do you why because it always goes to sean connery why do we always insist that everyone who's dutch just goes they know as many words joe as uh, you and i but uh, they get the intonation on the words all wrong good you're good and i am bad let's get a guest on now please <laughs> <laughs> that's it's actually it's actually better if i let's get a guest on now like gonna really <laughs> sound like a, like a mad witch grandmother dutch that's where joe can do dutch hello our guest today is nick pettigrew nick was an anti-social behavior officer for 18 years and has written an excellent book called anti-social i mean not overly original with the name of your book yeah, it didn't take massively long, I'll be absolutely honest with you. Uh, it wasn't a brainstorming session or anything like that. But at least it was straight to the point. So welcome. How how are you? Are you okay? 
Good, really good. Yeah, looking forward to this. What actually defines antisocial behaviour? Uh, I mean, there's a there's a rough guide which is any behaviour which causes alarm, harassment, or distress or nuisance to anybody who doesn't live in your home. Then that's antisocial behaviour. So, if you're being a nightmare to your wife or your husband, that's not antisocial behaviour. But if your next door neighbour is, then it is basically. So it's anything that causes you a nuisance or is harassing you or, you know, affecting your quality of life. So we could be talking loud music. We could be talking stenches. Yeah, possibly, possibly. We could be talking loud sex. Uh, We could if you want. Uh, I didn't expect it to go this way, but... (laughs) Do you know what? I've got a friend who lives... Uh, on the other side of town to me, who said to me once, he heard you from that far away. <laughs> Fucking hell. Did you phone them up? I mean, is that <laughs> exactly? Yeah, yeah. It's a hot, hot summer's evening. The windows were open. So this, this friend looked really tired at work one day. And I said, what's up? And she said, I just can't get any sleep. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, well, we've got an escort girl living next door. And I was like, oh, what? And she goes, you don't see her all day. And then sort of 11 at night, or it might be one in the morning, like a, a different car will pull up. And, you know, like a sort of well-to-do gentleman will get out and then you'll just hear them having like totally over-the-top sex for like <laughs> two hours. She goes, it's terrible. So anyway, so I've told this to a few other people who live, live in my town. Uh, listen, there's an escort girl who lives up there. And then next time I saw my friend, I said, oh, how's the, um, how's it going with the escort girl? Have you got rid of her? And she goes, oh yeah, it turned out she wasn't an escort girl. She just likes sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, we actually had a tenant once that was complaining about a property sort of over the road from where he lived. And he was saying, look, I think there's a, a, a brothel running from the address. We were like, okay, well, look, we'll look into that because it's criminal activity. We, we, we have to look into it. But the more he reported it, I started getting a bit suspicious because he started with that. And then it was like, so there's three girls. There's a Chinese girl, uh, there's a Brazilian girl, and there's a black girl. And this one works these shifts and they charge about this much. And there came a point I was like, <laughs> you know a bit too much about this, don't you? <laughs> And do they accept uh, any form of currency as well? Oh, I don't know about that. You know, that's too far. Yeah. So, what about the stereotype of antisocial behaviour? Is it is it just literally anyone? I think for me, when you have more options in life, the less likely you are to behave antisocially. So, if you've got a hundred different options in life because of your birth or your parents' wealth or your, you know, your race and how society treats you. Do you know what I mean? If, if you're born in the home counties and a nice big house and you've got all that, you've got like a hundred options in life. And one of them might be to be a drug dealer, but you've got 99 others. So it's not likely you're going to do that. But as things like, you know, poverty and racial inequality and mental health issues, that really narrows down your options in life realistically. So it can get to the point that you've got maybe six options in life. And one of them is to you know go off the rails a little bit so i think that's one of the things i think another thing as well is if you if you are living in big built-up areas you're living on top of each other so your behavior is your neighbor's going to notice it i want to give you a scenario so joe and i will often do this on his show where we try and bring a scenario to life by role-playing it so in this scenario joe and i live in the same block of flats and we're in adjoining flats I have made a complaint. So you've come around to my flat and Joe has stepped out of his flat. So we're confronting each other on the balcony of our flats. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The problem is, is that he doesn't, I wouldn't mind if it was loud music, but he just plays about three in the morning, blasting out of his speakers. 
he plays his own podcast, right? That's all I hear. It's keeping me awake. I can't sleep this noise. And I've knocked on the door and he won't turn it down. I keep asking him to turn this stupid podcast with his own voice on it down and he won't do it. Right. Okay, then. Um, so when you speak to him and ask him to turn it down, is this when it's happening? Is this at three in the morning or do you speak to him next day? Uh, so have you have you spoken to him about I've it? I've tried everything, mate. I've tried everything. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Do you know if any of your, your other neighbours are hearing this when it's happening? I mean, they, everyone can hear it. It's just he's coming out of the house now. Here he is. This is the one. This bloke here. Here. What are you saying? What are you saying, mate? What are you saying? You about? know what I'm saying. What loud music? Me playing my own podcast too loud. Your podcast night. three in the morning. My family can't sleep. I've not slept properly. It's affecting my job. My, I'm sorry, but my partner insists on playing the podcast whilst we're having sex for seven hours straight, uh, very loudly. That's not my fault. It's it's her need, and that's how I save our marriage. What I'd suggest at this point, lads, is if I maybe just go and speak to Tom, just listen to what he has to say. Joe, happy to speak to you. I'm happy to listen to you and, and what you've got to say, but maybe we do it separately, and that may just be a little bit calmer. So if you're going to be in your flat in about half an hour, Joe, I'll speak to you then. Yeah, take that, dickhead. That, I, just, <laughs> I, just threw an, I just threw an egg. It's hit Tom in the forehead and split. It wasn't a boiled one. It was a... Uh... Raw? Yeah, fuck off. Yeah, piss off. I'll speak to you in half an hour. Helmet. See, that's what he's like. Can you nick him for me, please? He needs to be arrested. Well, I'm not a police officer. I'm not a police officer, but by all means, call the police. If you feel that a crime has been committed, I'm going to walk away from this now because I'm not a police officer, but I will be recommending that the police pay pay you both a visit. What I did notice in that, Nick, was A, it was a really, really shit attempt at a role play uh, scenario <laughs> from Tom. I did expect a little bit better, but still we went with it. And B, how calm you seem to yes. stay. I'm guessing you have to be quite calm, level-headed. You can't fight fire with fire. And mm -hmm. I always think of... Um, uh, Adele, when she she did this skit with Graham Norton, where she dressed up as a pretend Adele and went and auditioned to do be an Adele lookalike. <laughs> Bear with me. Okay. So she went and met all these other Adele lookalikes, but she was dressed as a fake Adele. Are you with me? Yeah. Cool. Excellent. This now I've said it out loud. It sounds worse than Tom's role play. <laughs> and. She changes her voice and she's, she, she's quite harsh, isn't she? Like, you know, right, mate, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah I can sing, oh, yeah. <laughs> but she goes, oh, but I'm going to change my voice and I'm actually going to say that I'm a nanny because nannies talk calm to try and help the child understand the world better. And that's how you remind me. You remind me of... <laughs> of Adele. Ad, of Adele pretending <laughs> to be an Adele lookalike. I know it was a long answer, but okay, anyway, I, I, I love that, actually, now I'm thinking of it. I, I actually cried the first time I watched it. Have either of you seen that? I'm afraid not, no. Oh, fuck me, lads. You have to, after this, I want you to not go back and watch the cricket. I want you to go and YouTube BBC Adele pretends to be Adele audition and tell me whether you cry or not. Anyway, back to where we were. I'm guessing you have to be quite calm and level-headed, otherwise you'll get nowhere. A lot of it is sort of, de-escalating situations and, and taking the, the fire out of it. And, and obviously, if you're in the middle of it and making it worse, then you're, you're not helping either of them. So, you know, you get training about how best to do that. And, and on the phone as well, because on the phone, people will say and do 10 times worse than what they'll do face to face. Because they're pussies. <laughs> <laughs> um, that wouldn't be my professional opinion. Um, yeah, but I've had... 
I've had all kinds of abuse and threats and so on over the phone, way more than in face to face. So, but in, in any situation, yeah, it's, it's about letting people have their say, feeling like they're being listened to. Because to, to be honest with you, most people run out of steam after a few minutes because they'll come in all guns blazing. You're not fucking listening to me. I'm fed up. Bah, 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 bah. As soon as they feel like they're being listened to and they're not being ignored and they're being taken seriously, it's really hard to keep up that level of of being angry and stuff. It's, it's really hard to, to maintain that, to be honest. There's this well-known thing in schools, Nick, where teachers in theory could wear ordinary clothes, but they'll often wear smarter clothes because it just sends a signal to the pupils that they're in authority. So when you're going to a case, let's say you're going to a block of flats and there's a massive row booting off, how would you dress? Are you in a uniform? Are you trying to not be in a uniform? So you're sort of downplaying it a bit? Yeah, no, there's not a uniform. I think, I mean, I always try to not be obvious who I am on the estate because for one, if there are people who are getting up to stuff they shouldn't be, I don't want them to know who I am. And the other thing as well is people are really scared when they report stuff that people are going to find out, you know, there's this whole thing, oh, don't be a grass and all this kind of nonsense. So I don't want to go up to somebody's address and have the neighbours look and go, oh, well, that's what they're doing kind of thing. So to be honest with you, if I'm going out onto the estates, I dress not scruffy, but not business suit either. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's about blending in. And, and I think it's not about coming across as an authority figure in a uniform or a suit or stuff like that. It's about trying to come across as empathetic and, and on their level and like a human being, to be honest with you. So that's easier to do if you're not looking really formal or stuff like that. Because you talk about in your book about budget cuts and politicians being so out of the loop because they don't live in those worlds they live in they live in their country homes i'm not well i am generalizing as per fucking usual but they don't live in built-up areas they don't tend to live in the the inner city areas and therefore they don't really have a better understanding and end up making cuts because they haven't got a clue what's going on and how you guys needed that money in order to make improvements did that frustrate you yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, the thing I always say is it's the safety net is, is been disappearing for the last sort of 10 years plus. And it's the safety net that makes a difference. I mean, as an antisocial behavior officer, I couldn't do the job on my own. It's not a job you can do in isolation. You need the police and social services and drug and alcohol teams. And all of those services are getting thinned and thinned and narrowed and narrowed to the point where they're reacting. It's a reactive service. It's, it's when it's a red light situation that, people get the help they need whereas maybe a decade ago people would be getting help and you know advice and support and stuff when they were a bit lower down the, the hierarchy of needs so as a result towards the end of the job i was only really getting involved when people were hitting crisis point because all that help wasn't there you know the thing i always say is like antisocial behavior is like a smoke alarm going off that's that's the warning that something's wrong but the actual fire is somebody's having a crisis somebody's needs help 90 percent of the time that's what the problem is and if they're not getting the help and all those cuts we're talking about means they're probably not then they're getting to that stage so what what about the funniest or the strangest disagreements you've been called out to nick i'm thinking just off the top of my head some like dildo wars that um <laughs> for some reason neighbors are just not happy and instead of like cutting you know like rose bushes sometimes go over the garden or something mm -hmm. and they they're like who whose right is it to cut that bit of rose it's in my garden but the branch is over but you can't cut my branch anyway so in, instead of and in reaction to that john who lives in flat 4a and stephanie who lives in flat 4b mm -hmm. just start lobbing dildos at each other <laughs> 
Um, have you ever come across one like that? I've never been hit by a flying dildo in 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 the course of duty. No, um, you haven't lived. You have not lived. <laughs> There was the one, um, the guy who was convinced that his neighbour had a disappearing drum kit. What? He basically said, he said, look, my next door neighbor's playing the drums all the time. I said, well, what was like music? He said, no, 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 he's playing the drums. I said, okay, well, day and night, all the time, all the time. It's right next door to like where my living room is. I said, okay. Well, I said, well, he's, he doesn't know I'm here today. I'm going to knock on his door now. And if he's in, jobs are good. Do you know what I mean? Oh, oh fine. So it literally crossed the corridor, knocked on the door, explained who I was. The guy was like, all right, come in. And he lived in like one of the smallest one-bed flats you can imagine. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was fine for one person, but it was tiny. It's like a little tiny castle flat. And he walked me around it, and there was nothing. It was a, it was a one-bed flat. You couldn't, fit, you couldn't fit a bongo in the living room, <laughs> let alone like a full drum kit. And I was like, okay. And I explained what, you know, why I was there. And he went, oh, him. Yeah. He's, he's always complaining. I, I don't know what he's talking about. Fine. Okay. So I went back to the guy complaining. I said, look, you know, explain my visit. And he went, oh, he must, he must've seen you coming and he's hid it. He's hid it. He's hid a full drum kit in a one bed flat with no loft or basement or anything like that. Oh, he's hid it in like the two minutes it took to, so and people will convince themselves of stuff like that because the alternative is admitting that, that maybe they're, they're wrong imagine he's actually keistering that drum set <laughs> i wondered how long we get to through before. this before we got to keistering. <laughs> it's a common theme actually on this pod well okay. it's quite difficult not all uh, some bits of a drum set that's easier than others actually uh symbol will be tricky i imagine a high hat stick a drum stick i suppose though yeah it's easy it's just <laughs> um <laughs> So no dildos, just a disappearing drum set. What about the strangest? Have you have you ever been called out to hoarders? I'm thinking of um, Brian from Afterlife who hoarded everything under the sun mm-hmm. and he just shit in the corner of the room because you couldn't get into the toilet. Have you ever been called out to that? Because of yeah, I've had to, had to deal with hoarders. And, and again, it's if people are hoarding, they're not bothering anyone, then that's their business. Do you know what I mean? It, it, but often you'll get the the pests, you know, like the rats and, and the smells and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, we had a guy, and it was the strangest thing because when you saw him out in the street, he, he'd leave his flat each morning in a suit, go to work in an office, you know, clean shave. He just looked really sort of Joe average. And then he'd come home, and but when we went into the property, the, the place literally had like, you had to walk sideways down the, the corridor because everything was stacked either side and um like he slept on one half of his sofa because the other half of the sofa was just stacked with boxes and boxes of stuff like toilet rolls or cereal or batteries it was just it's basically and we, we had training on this uh hoarding's a form of ocd they think it's it's it is actually a psychological condition so you, you, what you can't do is just say right we're going to bin all this because one it's their stuff i mean you might think it's junk but it's it's their junk do you know what i mean and secondly they'll just fill up their property again so it's it's a really long really hard process to to get people from that stage to where the properties even if it's just manageable do you know what i mean where you, you had to say right well this little bit of the living room we're going to work on that this week and then that little bit over there so so yeah you do you do deal with them and i, I feel sorry for them to be honest with you because nobody nobody wants to live that way i don't think so yeah, so they're they're difficult, especially when you're trying to have a, a normal conversation and just out the corner of your eye you can see, you know, saucepans full of shit. So <laughs> <laughs> I love how he, he talks <laughs> he talks so detailed and then 
emotionally as well about it being a, a serious condition and an OCD form. And then you, you end your last thing you say is, yeah, you walk past a saucepan of shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 the gallows humour. It's you have to have it. <laughs> Patron shout out time, Joe. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Matt Turnip Williams. Matt's favourite vegetable is guess what? The turnip, and his duvet is a four point five tog. We're also sponsored by Dave Southworth, whose star sign is Libra, and Elliot. He always phones home. Matthews. A few more official sponsors. Hello to Charlotte Watts, Ollie Soundy and Josh Buckley. I loved it when you sang Hallelujah. All is fair in love and war. It's Matthew Fairs. And we're also sponsored by Benners. Peter Bennett. Thank you, Benners. <laughs> to be more like Peter, Matthew, Josh, Ollie, Charlotte, Dave and Matt, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show and grow the show. You've got to grow the show for us, please. Right, those were the ads, but more importantly, Tom, you've got a question. To all these dark things you've seen, Nick, right, this is something I don't particularly want to see, but I'd like you, if you if you wouldn't mind, to sort of take Joe and I by the hand and take us round a crack den. Okay. <laughs> It's like through the keyhole, isn't it? Through 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 the crack den. Who would live in a den like this? Is this a day out? Are we setting up a day out? Are we? Yeah, Nick's going to take us. I tell, I tell you what, actually, Nick. Let's make this increasingly. Uh, let's start at the easier end of it. Could you start by showing Joe and I round a cannabis farm in a flat, and then perhaps we could move on to the crack den okay. this afternoon? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a cannabis farm is any property that's been completely taken over by grown plants. So the kitchen, the bathroom, every room will have just rows and rows of plants. You'll have the hydroponics, which is like the water system. You'll have the lights, the lighting system. Every window will be blacked out, so you can't tell from outside. It'll often get sealed as well, so you can't smell it as you go past. The fuse box will give you nightmares for the rest of your life because they just bypass the electricity. People have views on cannabis. I have my own views on cannabis, whether it should be illegal or not. It should. But the problem with something like a cannabis factory is you've got water running throughout a property with dodgy electrics and it's a death trap basically and kill people so that was always our views that look you know the illegality but also the danger of it so yeah i mean what will happen is somebody will be told look if we can use your whole property for you know three months here's a water cash and i always understood why people would do it i couldn't condone it but i just think if you've got no money no job no prospects no chance of that happening and then somebody comes up to you and offers you a few grand it takes a lot to say no and, and I understand why people say yes to that. Well, there's well, there's some that you're quite impressed by because you've just described <laughs> it. Surely there has to be a bit of military operation in it all to set up a decent cannabis farm. The best one I saw wasn't in a building. There was an estate that we managed. And in the car park, there was a car that had been just abandoned there. It, I mean, it, it wasn't burnt out. It just it hadn't moved for, for months. So we checked and, you know, the owner wasn't a local. Um, we worked with the police and they went round. They had a bit of a sniff and they went, smells of drugs. So they got permission and they popped the boot open and running off the car battery in the boot of the car was a mini cannabis factory of like seedlings and lights ran out the boot of a car. Wow. And you've got to give them 10 out of 10 for ingenuity. <laughs> I love, I love the sound of that. <laughs> 
So, Tom, how did you enjoy our tour around a cannabis farm? I enjoyed it. I found it educational, but uh, I was aware of the dangers we were in, Joe. But I imagine as we go to the flat just down the hall, Nick, which is a crack den, mm-hmm. my sense of foreboding will only grow. <laughs> yeah, they're not the nicest. I mean, the thing is, look, it's if, if you're addicted to crack, a lot of stuff falls by the wayside because it's not important. And, you know, so the properties are, they're not going to be particularly clean they're not going to be particularly tidy because that that's your life your life revolves around getting the money to get crack and then smoking it so yeah you'll find foil on the floor you'll you'll find just general filth often the electric isn't working because it's not paid bills they're not the nicest places to be i mean I've, I've i've had to sit in them and interview people because they were the victims of antisocial behavior themselves because i mean that's another thing that if you are a drug addict or have mental health issues or have alcohol issues, you're more likely to be a victim of antisocial behaviour than you are to be causing it. Um, so this particular guy, he he was letting all hands because basically a lot of crack dens, what happens is there's like an entry fee where you can use my flat to shoot up or smoke crack or whatever, as long as I can have a bit of yours, basically. But he was having people coming around and beating him up and you know seeing this stuff and stuff like that. Um, and his life had just sort of spiralled out of control. So I was actually sat in a crack den interviewing the guy whose crack den it was. But I was interviewing him as a, as a victim. Rightly or wrongly, wherever you may think about his lifestyle, he was a victim. Most addictions are horrific stuff, but crack is a particularly horrific drug. When you see the effects it has on people, how quickly and the just how it just totally takes over people's lives, it just... It looks horrific. It is, and, and the, the, the behaviour they're willing to do to, you know, to get the money for, for the drugs can often spiral because the more in the grip of crack addiction you are, the less able you are to get money by legitimate or even sort of semi-legitimate means. So you, you become more desperate. Um, I mean, I have a view, and it's a view I express in the book, that we need to have a conversation about the legality of drugs in this country because... I'm going to ask both of you whether you've ever smoked crack and I'm going to guess the answer is no. No, funnily enough, Nick, I've never touched a bit of crack. I'm not entirely sure what it is. Is it cocaine or something? It's crack. It's a version of cocaine. It's crack cocaine. Uh, the reason I ask that is, the second question is, was the fact it was illegal the reason you didn't do it or did you just not do it because you you would never do that? Oh, he's he's asking us the questions, Tom. The only reason I ask that is because... No, I like I like it. I like it a lot. I, I don't think the legality stops people, whether it's illegal or not. I think for me, growing up, weed was a big thing around where I lived. We smoked very early doors, my first cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> I was about 11 or 12 when me and my mates found a 50 gram pouch of golden virginia and we were like oh and we actually went to our den it wasn't a crack den it was a <laughs> den at the top of the garages that we used to go to and me matt and sean would be like oh we've got this backer you know what are we can do with it we're like oh i think you roll it and make something out of it and we're like okay what do you use and they were like i think you use these like papers i was like cool have we got any they're like no what have we got Oh, we've actually got juicy fruit chewing gum. You know, the, <laughs> the the long sticks. This is not bullshit. This is fucking true. This is my, our first cigarette that we tried was the outside, the yellow uh, paper of a juicy fruit Jesus. gum that we rolled up like thick as well. Wasn't how you actually meant to say it. And we're just smoking away at this. 
<laughs> I mean, it tasted quite nice, actually, as as far as cigarettes go. But it wasn't the legal side. It was more the fear of, oh, I don't really know what crack is. And it's not available around where we live. So that's why I didn't smoke crack. <laughs> Tom, what about you? I remember having a conversation with a bloke once in a club. I was at the bar and he came up to me and he was trying to convince me of the joys of crack. And <laughs> as I looked at his face... I mean, he was a terrible advert for whichever drug he was doing because his teeth had all fallen out. His face looked like it is carved from a rotten potato. And <laughs> his general air, the ambiance around him, was one of intense anxiety slash barely muted fury. So even as he was telling me, mate, you've got to try, it's amazing. I was looking at him <laughs> thinking, mate, I'm never going to do it if this is what it's done to you. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, th- I think that's the thing. And I think people who do have ad- addictions, the legality hasn't stopped them. It's a difficult conversation, but I just think if you had your crack addict, I won't say friend, but associate in that club, if people could be prescribed it and go home and do that and not have to rob or shoplift or do sex work or break into you know cars or houses, not have to do any of those things. A lot of money would be freed up in policing, in the justice system, in the prison system that could be spent on better things like drug treatment, for instance, because honestly, 99% of the addicts that I met didn't want to be out on the streets, didn't want to be out hustling for money, didn't want to be doing things. They just wanted to go home, take their drugs and mind their own business. And if there was a way of doing that sensibly and carefully and and monitored and, and with support, it can't be worse than what we've got now. So just to clear that up, Tom, are you hearing this as well? You want to make crack legal? Um, I think it's worked in other places. If you if you look at Portugal, they've tried it and the amount of overdoses has plummeted because you're getting a dose where you know how much it is, for instance. Uh, the, the crime rate's dropped because, you know, a crack addict or a heroin addict doesn't shoplift or beg or break into cars or do sex work because they're bored. It's because they need the money. Whereas if it was... Available on prescription, A, it's very cheap to manufacture, so it wouldn't be a big burden on the NHS. It would be more monitored because you'd know how much they were taking. You could piggyback it with drug treatment to try and get them off it because it, I'm not saying it's a great lifestyle. But what I'm saying is if you had that, a lot of the crime, petty crime, would disappear. A lot of the criminal gangs would no longer have a, a, a source of income. So you're stopping the, the, the bigger criminals. And, and as I say, it, it, what we're doing now isn't working, and I don't think anyone thinks it, it is. So you can have something that is decriminalised and monitored and still not think it's a great thing to do. I mean, alcohol kills however many people. Nobody thinks it's a great thing, but we've found a way to make it work. Nobody thinks smoking is a great thing, but we've found a way to make it work. And I just think it's worth a try or it's worth a conversation at least. It is just my opinion, but it's my opinion based on, you know, over a decade, decade and a half of, of doing this job. When you break it down and explain it like that, You've completely opened my mind in the space of five minutes of considering it as that actually makes sense. What about you, Tom? Does that make sense to you? I do think there's a conversation to be had around it because if you're starting from a point now where it's not working, how's it going to get worse from there? Mm-hmm. But why, is, why isn't the conversation happening then? Why do people not want to talk about this? Because like you've just described to me, tobacco and alcohol are shit for you. And it's like, oh, hang on a minute. Why, why isn't the conversation about drugs happening? I think it's seen as a vote loser. And I just think there's a lot of short-termism in politics these days where you're looking no further than the next election and being re-elected, or you're looking no further than balancing the books this year and not the year after. So I'll give an example. Um, They said capital punishment in Germany when it was legal. I think about 
four-fifths of German population supported it. And then the German government said, fine, we're still making, we're still getting rid of it. You might think it's good, we're getting rid of it because we don't. Within five years, it had flipped and it was like 20% of people supported capital punishment. So there is precedent for governments saying, look, you might not think this is a great idea, but we've looked into it. You're going to have to trust us on this one. We're not going to be popular for a while, but in the long run, we think you'll see the benefits. I mean, look at lockdown. Boris Johnson had made very unpopular, difficult decisions in March of 2020 and stuck with them. We'd be recording this in a pub somewhere. And we're not because he makes short-term, easy decisions that he thinks will keep him popular. So I think the, the conversation around drugs is, is an example of that, where it's a popularity contest nobody wants to lose. Tom, I don't think we're going to get a politician on the show, the amount we seem to have bagged them. Do you have an issue with that? Do you have an issue with not getting I a think we might do one day, because politicians do like talking a, about politics, but also about themselves. Okay. So I, I wouldn't rule out getting a politician on your show. Well, we'll cross that river when uh, the boat arrives then. <laughs> anyway, I know we've spoken about crack dens and, and cannabis <laughs> farm. Is that, is that Are those the worst call-outs you've had, or have there been position? I'm picturing someone's died, they haven't been found for a few days, if not longer. Yeah, I mean, you, you get a few. I think anyone who works in housing for any amount of time eventually has that. That call where it'll be a neighbour saying, look, I haven't seen the neighbour for a while. We're, we're a bit concerned. Um, the first one I went to, I went with a housing officer who was like an old hand. They've been doing it for years. So we went to the property and knocked on the door. There was no answer. So they, they lifted up the letterbox and, and sniffed. And they sniffed and then they went, yeah, he's dead. I was like, sorry, what? And they went, go on. It's a bit grim, but there's a particular smell that dead bodies have that you never forget once you smell them. So... Once that happens, you phone the police and uh, obviously they have to force entry and they were in for a few minutes and they came out and the probation copper was lime green. He was absolutely pale and lime green because obviously this is the, the first call out to this he'd had. But again, part of the job, it's it's you're going to have to see it at some point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. I think, Joe, the saddest stories in Nick's book or the single saddest story is about this. It's about... A man called Albert, who's 80 years old, and how you find him, Nick, and what he's writing in his Christmas cards. Yeah, there was. It was just. It was the start of start of the year, actually. And and funny enough, there was a a drug property in a block of flats. So I was just doing door knocking to see if anyone's seen anything or heard anything. And there was a particular property where there was loads of post outside. It looked a bit off. So I did the the letterbox thing, and I thought, okay, well that's that's an issue a bit concern so yeah so from the police they 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 found uh albert in the property and he lived a very sheltered life he didn't really seem to he sort of rejected help it wasn't that it wasn't offered he just lived his own life um so once the police had done their job and, and the body had been taken away there was a concern around his cats we knew he had cats but we couldn't see them so i had to go into the property and these are the things you don't expect to be doing as an antisocial behavior officer is walk into a block of flats with a box of cat food so I went into the property and it was in a pretty poor state. And um, uh, in, in the living room, the Christmas tree was still up. And um, the, there were cards that uh, Albert had been writing to himself from his cats uh, when he died. So it's, it's they're, they're the ones that, that, that stayed with you. It's just the thought of him sort of being on his own when that, when that happened. Oh, fucking hell, that's awful. You just... We've had quite a lot of light and piss taken on here, but when you actually sit back and think about some of the vulnerable, particularly old people in the society and how alone they are, fucking hell. It's horrible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what about the fact that Asbos aren't, they were a big thing at one point a few years ago. They were, fr- they were thrown out left, right and centre. But is it true they're not around anymore? You can't give someone an Asbo? Basically, Tony Blair brought in a load of legislation to deal with antisocial behaviour. There was loads of different orders and, and court orders and, and bits and bobs. And it was all a bit jumbled, to be honest with you. So in 2014, it all got simplified. And one of the things that they got rid of was Asbos because they were a bit cumbersome. They were a bit difficult to get in court. And they're only as good as they were policed. You know, so Joe, if you've got an ASBO on, on granted against you for, um, I don't know, whatever it is you get up to. Smoking juicy fruit uh, rolled cigarettes outside uh, a supermarket whilst pretending to be a dog. So if you've got an ASBO for that, which is really common, um, <laughs> <laughs> they're only as good as they're policed because you get that bit of paper. But if nobody catches you doing it, it's, it's pointless. And that was a lot of the problems with ASBOs. If you have too many of them, you can't keep track of them. So what replaced them or, or kind of gets used now are injunctions. And the really simple way of describing an injunction is it's a court order that says, we've proven that you've been doing juicy fruit outside a shop while pretending to be a dog. Woof! <laughs> and, uh... Woof! <laughs> Woof! What am I doing? <laughs> what the fuck is going on? This needs to stop. Oh, God. Well, one way we'd stop it is an injunction, which would be a court order saying you cannot do this anymore. And if you do, you can be fined or sent to prison. <laughs> <laughs> what are the other powers that you've got then, Nick? Because I imagine sometimes that you'd find yourself in a situation where you'd think someone's being a little shit and you're just desperate to say you're being a little shit, but you can't conclusively definitely prove they've been a little shit. The biggest problem with being an antisocial behaviour officer is the difference between what you know and what you can prove. Because you would go, you know, take your, your I would never call them little shits, but we'll, we'll, we'll use that as, a, <laughs> as the working title, um, your little shit example. And you'd go on, on, onto an estate or a street or, or whatever, and you'd get the neighbour saying, oh, everyone knows what they're like. I can't go to court and tell a judge. Everyone knows what they're like. Can I have my injunction now? You know, it doesn't work. But uh, So when you kind of know what's going on, but you can't prove it, there's different ways of getting evidence. There's CCTV, which can work, but isn't the, the magic bullet everyone thinks it is. There's professional witnesses. You know, there's, there's asking the neighbours to keep an eye out. So there's all those kind of things. In terms of powers, in terms of, uh, of powers that you can use to stop behaviour, often if there's drug dealing going, taking place at an address, that's one way you can, you can deal with it. You can basically say, nobody is allowed into flat 1A, including you, even though you live there. Premises closure orders can be properties. It can be a phone box. If you can define a geographical area, you can get a premises closure order on it to close it down. So if a phone box is being used for drug taking or prostitution or whatever, you can go get a court order and basically board it up. Nobody's allowed in. Do you mean they're using the phone box for the act of prostitution or you, they're using it for ad, ad, <laughs> or they're using it for advertising? <laughs> It could be both. It can actually oh, be both. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. quite a tight squeeze, though, you know. It is. I mean, they're usually used for toilets or for, for, for shooting up heroin and stuff as well. But, um, yeah, it's multi-purpose, and sometimes people even make phone calls from them. <laughs> <laughs> so all this stuff you've seen, Nick, the thing I'm wondering is the effect it has on you because you're seeing stuff that me and Joe wouldn't want to see, and you're seeing a lot of this stuff every week. So what effect does your job and what you're seeing have on you? Uh, the job had, a, a, I think, a massive effect on my on my mental health. Historically, I've always 
I had always suffered with depression sort of since my early 20s, uh, which was intermittent and, you know, I had medication for it and so on. But I did notice toward the end it was getting worse, I think. My main concern, apart from my own personal concern, was was my ability to do the job. I, I, I felt I wasn't giving it 100% and it's a job that you have to do 100% because that's only fair. So, yeah, I, d- I did notice it was impacting on that and, you know, the good days were getting fewer and fewer. You try and leave it at work as much as possible but I think realistically you always bring a bit of it home with you. There's a social worker I know Nick who said to me once you can't go into it and think you're going to save the world. No completely Um, I think you can't make the the entire world a better place but if you make one housing estate or one street or even one home better than it was if you hadn't have been there then that's you know that's a win I mean it's you know I've, I've got a relative who works in accident and emergency in a hospital and yeah they're not saving the world when they do that but the people they're dealing with they're making a difference to their lives by being there and sometimes in some ways the hardest cases were the ones where we did everything we could to investigate it we did everything we could to try and help people but ultimately we couldn't solve the problem and and they're the hardest conversations to have to say to somebody i'm not saying it's not happening i'm just telling you i can't prove it's happening as a result of that, I can't do anything about it. So they're the really difficult ones in a way. What about when I go on Facebook and I go on my local community page and there's so many people on there moaning about youngsters hanging outside Tesco's? Is that a reflection of where we're at with society that people just want to complain about kids when they're not actually doing any harm? Yeah, I mean, it was the standard conversation I'd have if, if somebody phoned in and, and like you said, oh, there's kids hanging around the street corner. And the next question is, what are they doing? Are they on drugs? Are they being violent? Are they... No, 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 they're just... I said, well, they're existing. You can't <laughs> take action against somebody for existing. And if they've got to be stood somewhere, um, unless you want to get into quantum physics where you can zap them into another universe. So <laughs> basically, yeah, you would have that. And it's about managing expectation, but also educating sounds a bit sort of finger wagging, but just educating people and say, look, you know, just because they're hanging around doesn't mean they're doing anything. Now, if you see them doing stuff, we can, we can address that. For older residents... I completely understood. If somebody, Joe, who looked like you, phoned up and said, I'm scared of these lads hanging around a street corner, I would treat that a bit differently from somebody who was, you know, a 90-year-old woman saying the same thing because clearly that's that's a different kettle of fish. So in those cases, again, it's about managing expectation and, and trying to make people feel a bit more safe. And speaking with the with the group of lads, and even if they're not doing anything, just say, look, you know, I know you're not doing anything, but look, we've had this, so can you just be a bit mindful? Because often what people saw as being antisocial or threatening or violent. If you get 12 teenage lads in a group together, the volume will go up five decibels every 10 minutes. Do you know what I mean? So by our fate, they're shouting at each other. The language might be a bit fruity, but they're not doing anything. So it's, it's about, again, just engaging with them, saying, lads, I know you're not doing anything, but this is what I'm being told. Can you just bear that in mind? And you'd be surprised, not just with that situation, with most situations, if you speak to somebody reasonably, the amount of times people will go, yeah, all right, fair enough. People can be reasonable if, if you treat them reasonably. I've got two questions, Nick, before we go. The first one maybe doesn't sound that optimistic, but I'd like an honest answer. Are we getting less tolerant as a, as a nation? Uh, yes and no. I think there are ways in which we're broadening out as a, as a society, whether that's uh, talking about mental health, whether that's issues around LGBT, whether that's uh, issues around race and so on. We're, we're, we're having more open conversations about it. But I think alongside that, and again, my personal opinion, uh, I think the media and political class we have are trying to make it 
quite the opposite. It's trying to atomize society and say, these people are the problem. These people are the ones you need to be scared of. These are the people we need to get rid of. And whether that's because they don't look like us or sound like us or aren't the same age as us or have different lifestyles, you look at the messages on television, news, you know, newspapers and stuff like that, and those are the messages we keep getting. I think we're as tolerant a society as we're encouraged to be. I think society with a big S can be a good place, you know, and a, and a, and a, and a reasonable place and, a, and an accepting place. And in my job, when you've got people together to talk about an issue that was affecting the entire neighbourhood, if you get them on board, people will walk through fire to, to help each other. I may be naive, but I am an optimist that podcasts like this are doing that in a in a smaller way. And it's it's the pile of bricks metaphor. You can't move an entire pile of bricks, but you can move one. So if you're doing that on a, on a personal level and just in the way you interact and, and the messages you choose to amplify, there's a way around that, I think. And it's not easy and it's it's a constant battle. But yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, the, the big money and the big influences, that's not the message they want. But if you can nudge people towards a different way of looking at things, it's it can, I think, happen. It's it's a really interesting topic and it's one that I'd like to talk much more about. But there's three words that I need to give to you, Nick, before you go. And those three words are Nazi paedophile penis. <laughs> what? Oh, you found out what my nickname is. Um, oh, <laughs> Tom. Okay. Um, it's somebody we had to deal with and I talk about it in the book. Um, we were told that a person was going to be arrested and taken away. And we were asked to come round to make sure the property was in a safe condition while that person was going to be away as landlords. So we turned up and when I turned up, there was a guy getting CPR on the, on the balcony of a block of flats. And we found out that uh, he had been sending threatening letters to the police, anti-Semitic abusive letters to the police with a lot of Nazi imagery and so on. And he got caught because criminal masterminds are on news and films a lot, but criminal idiots are far more common. <laughs> uh, and he licked the envelopes that he'd sent to the police. <laughs> he could have spent 50p more and got the self-sealing ones. Do you know what I mean? Splash it. Oh, yes. those They're nice envelopes, actually. <laughs> And, you know, his DNA was on the criminal database. And the reason it was on the criminal database was he was a sex offender. Oh, for fuck's uh, sake. So he, uh, they tracked him down and they'd knocked on his door and said, look, hi, we're the police. It's about those letters. And he just collapsed on the spot and had a heart attack. A real one? Or was that his, his go-to of like, oh, God. Oh. <laughs> that was my initial reaction but the paramedics turned up and had the paddles on him so they they seemed to think he was having a proper heart attack and they know what they're talking about what if they were in on it with him what if it was one massive conspiracy <laughs> and they're like right you hit the deck and i'm thinking too much into this you carry on <laughs> so yep yeah, so when we arrived uh, that was what was happening so i had to sort of phone back to the office say look we might be a while here and as i was talking i looked and, and when the paramedics do cpr they cut your clothes completely off because they had to get at you to put the paddles on, make sure there's no other injuries and so on. So as I'm having this conversation with the office, I sort of look and I notice that I can see his knob, basically. Excellent. And as they're doing CPR on him, his knob is jiggling like a windsock. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, so when you go, how was work tonight today? Well, I, I saw a Nazi paedophile's. No. Surely your first thought was to go over there and castrate the fucker. Well, he seemed to be circling the drain, so I just thought, let nature take its course rather than ended up with a criminal record. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't even want to get into the conversation of how you would under the radar cut a paedophile's cock off. Uh, this this is a, a difficult story, but I did have to deal with a sex offender who was alive and not having a heart attack as a victim of antisocial behaviour. He fuck off. He'd moved into a property and said that the neighbours were harassing him and he wanted to move somewhere else. And the reason they were harassing him is he told the neighbours that he was on the sex offenders register because he, he was a paedophile. And the difficulty with that is you have to be professional and you have to listen to their complaints and you have to treat them like any other resident while inside your brain is screaming all those things you've just said there. And you have to. And, and in the same way, those paramedics knew the guy they were working on, what kind of person he was. But you can't choose who to be professional with and not be professional with as much as you believe me you would like to mm, i'd like to think there was some small amount of unconscious bias though that... i'm not going to say i busted gut <laughs> for him no no uh, i'm not going to say i went out of my way i'd like to think that the paramedics didn't actually turn the paddles on either <laughs> uh, sorry i've just put a paddle on his balls yeah <laughs> yeah t- here, tom turn you flick the switch on haven't you Yes, Joe, I've definitely flicked the switch on to help save this Nazi paedophile. And they even start making the sounds instead of it actually. (laughs) Anyway, I think that's enough of the Nazi paedophile chat. What do you reckon, Tom? I think that's probably enough Nazi paedophile chat for one podcast. Have you got any more? I thought you saw how they dealt with any more Nazi paedophiles. I thought one was enough, to be honest with you, but okay. What was the what was the second paedophile doing telling everyone in, in his new block of flats that he was on the sex offenders list? If he didn't like where he was living and wanted ah. to move, he then made himself at risk. And the problem is, and this is where it gets complicated, is if he was the only person at risk, I would have tried a little less hard. But if you've got some guy on the estate who's a dad who goes around and ends up with a criminal record because yeah. he's clumped him or done worse, I don't want to put that bloke in that situation. And the other thing as well is... You know, he was getting threats of firebombs and he lived in a ground floor flat with people above him. And I don't want people burning in their flats because of him. So it's the the initial sort of instinct I completely get and I, I probably shared, but there's broader questions and, and other people's safety I had to consider when dealing with it. Not an easy one. I was slightly uh, apprehensive and sceptical about actually, are we going to get much out of an antisocial behaviour officer? Are we going to get, is it just a a willy-nilly, stop using willy-nilly, you idiot. (laughs) Is it just, uh, you know, very similar to the PCSOs that might have a couple of stories but don't actually do much? And not that I'm putting down the PCSOs, but I'm just thought, oh, there's not going to be much to it. And yet sitting here listening to you for the last couple of hours has been brilliant both dark and light which i like to think we do quite a lot in here tom and i've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know what an antisocial behavior officer does so nick thank you so much and joe we should mention that nick's book is out in paperback now it's called antisocial i've read it and it is amazing i mean that it's a fantastic book it is dark at times but it's also extremely funny and um, I would recommend it extremely highly. It's a it's a fantastic book. You would recommend it extremely highly. Yes, yeah, a terrible phrase, but basically, Joe, it's a great book. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much, mate. Take care. <laughs> well, Joe, I find that a very enjoyable episode. How about you? I liked it. I am slightly concerned, though, that he's managed to persuade me to consider to even consider making crack legal. 
I don't know, the whole phrase, because he gave us that lovely tour of, of the crack den. It's got quite a negative image, hasn't it, crack den? Maybe they need to think about rebranding these as crack lounges. <laughs> They've got a negative image, these crack dens, yeah. Because changing it to lounge, or what else could we change it to? Crack playroom. The crack kitchen. The crack kitchen. The crack kitchen works. In fact, we want to try and set up a, like a, a mum's kids play coffee lovely like bits and bobs you know like the organic brownies and stuff like that with some also boutique type kids clothes and toys all in one like space and we've been trying to think of a name for it and you've nailed it the crack kitchen whilst you think about the crack kitchen i'm going to remind our listeners that if they want to support the show search for joe marler show on patreon sign yourself up over there for extra content if you want another podcast to listen to, search for Death of a Sports Star in your podcast app. So you'll find episodes about John Alomu, Anthony Foley, but also Diego Maradona and Kobe Bryant. And it's presented by Elroy Spoonface Powell, who Joe was a tremendous guest on this very show. Just search for Death of a Sports Star in your podcast app. Right, that sounds lovely. In true Elroy Spoonface Powell fashion... I'm going to seduce you into telling me who's on our next episode. Who the fuck is on next week's show? On next week's show, Joe, we have a special forces soldier. I look forward to the super army soldier next week then. I'll see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Podcast Network.